willfully, woefully ignorant of. Now, the original motivation for this sermon came from an article by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and it appeared in the August 28, 19th, In this sermon, we'll be dealing with a subject that on the one hand we are very familiar with, and on the other hand, frequently woefully ignorant of. Now, the original motivation for this sermon came from an article by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and it appeared in the August 28, 1978 issue of the Good News magazine. It was entitled, What You May Not Know. Now, it covers a couple of principles that we need from time to time to review or in some cases cover for the very first time. Well, the article was about Satan and his deceptions. Now, humanly, we have a tendency to go to extremes about him. Either we blame him for everything, a la Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it, thus absolving ourselves, or the other extreme is to ignore him and thus become easy prey for him. It does seem that the more carnally educated a person becomes, the less attention one gives to Satan. It also seems that the less educated, the more superstitious, and the more Satan is blamed for everything. Now the answer is somewhere in between, with Satan assuredly being the unseen influence responsible for a major portion of man's troubles not because he made us do things, but because we are ignorant of or careless in regard to him, and we thus do his bidding. Now, of major concern to, to us is that baptism and the receiving of God's Holy Spirit does not exclude us from Satan's influence. Indeed, it may intensify it, and probably does so, because he plays then a great deal more attention to us. Now, I want us to understand, as we lay the foundation here, that when I say Satan, I am usually also including his vast army of demons as well. Now, one of Satan's master strokes of deception has been to succeed in getting most of the educated of this world to believe that he doesn't even exist but he is merely used in the Bible as a symbol or a figurative uh, emblem to explain the presence of evil. But the Bible, on the other hand, shows him not only to exist, but to be the chief of a huge army bent on destroying God's plan. So in this sermon, I am beginning a series, but we're going to lay a foundation from the Scriptures so that we will understand more of what we are dealing with in our pilgrimage toward the kingdom of God. Now let's begin by going to Revelation, the 12th chapter, and a number of verses in that chapter. We will begin in verse 3. Revelation 12 and verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, notice stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now down in verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So there he is identified, the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, in verse 4, stars is used, a symbol, a symbol of angels, and we find that the angels were then cast out with him, and that the devil and his angels were cast to the earth. So we have insight here of a major battle that took place in heaven and that uh, Satan lost it. Satan and his angels lost it, and they were cast to the earth. Now, unfortunately, that's where we live. Now, verse 12. 
Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, and woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the man-child. Now, uh, let's go back to the first chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, so that we will, uh, Revelation 1 and in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now that very clearly identifies the symbolism of an angel and a star. The star is an angel for, I mean, is a symbol for an angel. In Revelation 9 and verses 1 and 2. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven and to, to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like a smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Okay, we have there a star falling from heaven, and uh, that star identified generally in symbolism in chapter 1 as being an angel, and that angel then opens the bottomless pit. Now let's go to Second Peter Second Peter, the second chapter, and in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now here we continue on our explanation of what has occurred uh, on this earth long before us, and uh, another step is clarified in regard to the positions that the angels, or the demons, if we want to call them that, are holding at this time. Now, hell here, in the English versions, comes from the Greek tartaru, and it means a place of restraint. So God did not spare the angels, but he cast them down to a place of restraint. We might call it a prison. Now, it is interesting that in Greek mythology, Tartarus was the lowest hell. It is described as being so far below Hades that it was as far below Hades as heaven is high above the earth. So, at least in Greek mythology, we can understand that uh, these angels were cast so far down, you might say they would be out of sight. They would be in a place of restraint from which you would think that they would never be able to, to crawl out. And again, in mythology, Tartarus was the place where the Titans, if any of you are familiar with Greek mythology, where the Titans who rebelled against Zeus were restrained. So, what God is trying to get across here is that the angels have been cast down, cast down from heaven down to the earth, as Revelation 12 very clearly shows, cast down to the earth. We find that the earth now is a place of restraint for them, that it is a prison. Now, to add to that imagery, again in Second Peter 2 and verse 4, you see the words in the New King James, chains of darkness. Now, this just emphasizes or amplifies uh, the thought that Peter is, is getting across to us here, that the demons are in a place of restraint. Now, there is some disagreement among the scholars as to whether Peter used the word that is translated here, chains, or another word that is very similar to the Greek word translated here, chains, but could also be translated silo. Now, almost every one of us understands what a silo is. It is a long, cylindrical 
object in which grain is stored. Now, to the Greek, a silo was an underground pit. You see, something dug into the ground in which grain, after the harvest season, was stored. So whether it's a chain or whether it's silo, it doesn't matter. God is trying to get across to us that the demons have been restrained. Now, the idea is that they are being strained because they are facing judgment. Unfortunately for you and me, maybe I shouldn't use that word, they are restrained in the place where we live. The earth is the silo. The earth is the storage bin. We are sharing this place with them. And as they would look on it, we are the intruders into their space. Isn't that interesting? We are the invaders. It's an interesting concept. Now let's go to the book of Jude. And in the book of Jude, in verse 6, parts of the book of Jude parallel Second Peter very closely. And it says in verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now this clarifies something that we only saw a part of in Revelation 12 and 2 Peter 2. Another piece of the picture is added, and we find that the angels did not keep their proper domain. That can also be transferred. They did not keep their positions of authority. It shows that God assigned them a stipulated responsibility, a set place, but they left it. Now, the pieces are beginning to fall together, and that is the set place the stipulated responsibilities were on the earth. They left it. They mounted up an attack against God in heaven. They were defeated. They were cast down. And the place that they were originally given, the place of their domain, instead becomes a prison, a place of restraint. Now let's go back to the Old Testament a little bit. Uh, for two or three verses here, two verses anyway, back to the book of Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, and in verse 12. Ezekiel 28, and in verse 12. Now, I think most of you are familiar enough to understand that Ezekiel 28 goes back and forth within its context between the king of Tyre and another personality, that is going to be introduced here into the sermon in just a little bit, named the cherub, the covering cherub, or the anointed cherub. Now in uh, verse 12 then, Ezekiel 28, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, thus says the eternal God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, the beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the day you were created. So we're dealing with an unusual being here, a very great beauty, who was in the Garden of Eden. He walked or was, had uh, precious stones as a part of his covering. I take that to mean that uh, they were part of the clothing that, that adorned him, and that he was a created being, not one who was born. In addition to that, he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, obviously, God is not speaking here of a human being. This personality, this personage, was the sum total 
of all that God could create by fiat and put into a living being. Verse 14, he identifies him more clearly. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. I think that that's about as far as we want to go here in the book of of, uh, Ezekiel. And I am sure that you understand that we are talking here, or God is talking about Satan, who was the leader of the attack that was mounted against God long before man was created. Now let's go to the book of Isaiah, this time in chapter 14, Isaiah 14, and in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Well, isn't it clear how all of this fits together now, especially with those verses that we saw in Peter and in Jude? How clear it becomes, putting this together with Revelation 12, that what occurred was that God assigned the angels to the earth, that they were under their commander, Lucifer, who was the sum total of all that God could create by fiat and cram into a created being, and that he was perfect in his ways until iniquity was found in him. So we see here a picture of a being of awesome beauty, of awesome power, of tremendous intelligence, also though a creature of free moral agency. Now something happened to that great being, and he began a campaign of deceit and began to separate away from God a number of the angels, undoubtedly using the reasoning that they should have more, that God should treat them better, that God was being unfair, that they didn't have the liberty, that they didn't have the freedom or the power that was due them because he said, I will be like the Most High. Now, there are some commentators who say that what the Hebrew says in reality is, I will be God. Not just like God, I will be God. Now, you can see what he wanted. He wanted to have complete power and authority and control. He did not want to be under another. He did not want to be submissive. He didn't want another being pulling his strings or controlling him. He wanted to sit, as it were, on the mount of the congregation. And so he says, I will make war. I will ascend into heaven. And so they left their first estate. They left the realm of their authority. And they mounted up a war and attacked God, but were defeated. And they were cast down. And their first domain then became a place of restraint, a silo, a pit. They were now chained there, giving an indication that as a result of their rebellion, they no longer had the liberty that they had previously that were now held in restraint, and a great deal of their free moral agency was taken away from them. Now let's go to the book of Luke. In Luke, the 10th chapter, and in verse 18. Luke 10, and in verse 18. 
Jesus speaking to the 70 that he had sent out, and now they returned with a great deal of joy, saying to him, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, like a great lightning bolt streaking out of the sky. This brilliant angel, shining with all of his glory, glory that had been given to him by God, was cast to the earth. So where did he fall? <laughs> he fell right where we are, and now we have to deal with him. Now, what are we up against? Now, I hope that when I get done with this next section in, the, in this sermon, in laying the foundation, that you will not be depressed or frightened. But I think that it's necessary for us to deal with the reality of one aspect of the situation. I don't think that God wants us to hide from these things. And once you begin to see what is arrayed against us, you are going to know that it is by grace that we are saved. Because if we had to fight Satan and his demons without God being on our side, we would lose in the blink of an eye. It would be that one-sided. Now let's go to the book of Daniel. Daniel, the seventh chapter, and verses 9 and 10. Now after watching the awesome vision that Daniel had been given of the four beasts, I am sure that Daniel was was pretty much traumatized. And so God gave him a peek into something else, I am sure, in order to encourage him, to bolster him, to help him to understand what was going for Daniel. And you might say Daniel's side. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated, and his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And so he had a vision right into the very throne, throne room of the universe where God himself was seated and ruling everything that he has created. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him a thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, the court was seated, and the books were opened. Now, I went to this because I want for us to have some sort of an idea of the number of demons that there might be. Now, you will recall that in Revelation, the 12th chapter, the dragon dragged with him one-third of the stars of heaven. That is, he got uh, allied with him, won the loyalty of one-third of the angels. Now, whether these were one-third that were scattered between earth and heaven, or whether this was the one-third that maybe he had been assigned by God, uh, to help him to govern, to develop, to use the, the earth in the way that God intended, I do not know. I only know the indication is from Revelation, the 12th chapter, that one-third of the angels went with him. Now, we have a picture here in Daniel, the seventh chapter, of these beings who surround the throne of God. And from this, we can extrapolate and uh, maybe get some figures that will help us to deal with uh, the number of angels or demons that there might be. There are two ways that we can go about this. Number one is that here in verse 10, where it says, A thousand thousands ministered to him. 
and 10,000 10, times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. Now, I think that we need to understand that I don't think that God intended that these be exact figures, but they are figures that help us to understand that there was one group that was closely associated with the throne of God, and a figure is given by Daniel under the inspiration of God, a thousand thousands. Now, that means 1,000 times 1,000, at least. If we say 1,000 times thousands, plural, then maybe it is 1,000 times 2,000 or 1,000 times 3,000, somewhere in that neighborhood. But let's keep it at a conservative figure, 1,000 times 1,000. That is 1 million that are associated very closely right at the throne of God. Now, that's not too hard to understand. We have cities on earth, do we not, where there are millions of people in them. Los Angeles, the population there is about 6 million people. The metropolitan area is about 12 million people. I mean, that's a lot of people. Why can't God have that many beings around him carrying out his bidding all over this universe? Okay, now, there is another group associated there, a thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Now, there is a question here. What are we looking at? Why did he separate and make distinct one group from the other? There are two ways, I think, that we can go with this. Number one is that the second group is also spirit beings, angelic beings. If that be so, and just to, to multiply it out, you will find then that 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. Okay, that's a sizable figure, is it not? But again, let's ask ourselves, is this too much? There's 260 million people in the United States. There's about 280 million people in, in Russia. 120 million people in Japan. Over 5 billion people on earth. What should be so amazing about God having 100 million spirit beings around him? Doesn't cause me any trouble. Okay, the second possibility is that what we are looking at here in verse 10 actually prefigures the great white throne judgment. Notice how similar the word is, wording is. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Maybe that's a possibility. And if that be correct, then what we have here is two groups, one consisting of roughly about one million spirit beings who are ministering spirits. The other group being a prefiguring of the great white throne judgment that is coming, and these people are standing because the books are open and judgment is about to begin on them. The third one is that they are all spirit beings. Okay, you see, this leaves us at least to do a little bit of calculating. If the one in which only the one million that are around God's throne is a true figure, if Satan, Lucifer, was able to get one-third of them away, they could not have been pictured here. Therefore, Satan has somewhere around, again, these are just guesstimates, 333,000 demons. Aha. Uh -huh. How big is the church? How many demons are there for each one of us? Yikes. Okay, if we take the other one, in which the 100 million are also angelic beings, one-third of that figure, because then we would have to realize then that God must have created somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 million spirit beings in the in the beginning, then Lucifer, Satan, 
has at his beck and call 50 million demons. Okay, I think that we can say, regardless of what is correct, we know this, they are invisible, they know of and they understand the use of God's laws better than we do, they have been around much, much longer on this earth than we have. They are formidable foes, and they are not to be disregarded. Now, let's turn a couple of chapters to Daniel, the 10th chapter. Now, please remember, I, I said, let's not get frightened by this. We don't have to be looking for demons behind every bush. In Daniel, the 10th chapter, we're going to read the first 13 verses so that we get the flavor of the context here. Now, we won't be going through it in a great deal of detail, but he, in the first verse, uh, he gives the time that this message came to him. And so in verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning Three full weeks I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Then after three weeks were fulfilled, verse 5, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, obviously, brethren, this was no man. He just looked like a man. Now, the Bible does not name who this was, but he was undoubtedly an angelic creature, and the best guess is it was the same angel that Daniel had dealt with before, named Gabriel. Now, verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but they were aware that something was there, and they, in great terror, fled to hide themselves. They didn't see it, but it's just like the hair on the back of their head stood up, and they got creepy crawly all over, and they felt motivated to get out of there. They didn't know why, but something of awesome power was close to them, and they were somehow, maybe the spirit of man within them was aware that something was around them, and they skedaddled. Verse 8, Therefore I was left alone, and when I saw this great vision, no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. And then suddenly a hand touched me and made me to tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. <laughs> Can you imagine the humiliation here? Here he was down on his hands and knees like a dog, shaking like a leaf. And he said to me, Oh, Daniel... Man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now, I want you to get the picture here. This awesome being, of power that was so great that men, and I have to think well, these were ordinarily strong men, valiant men, but men nonetheless 
were so frightened at something they could not see, they got up and ran. And yet, something withstood this great being to his face and kept him from getting to Daniel for three full weeks. Can you even begin to imagine the titanic struggle that went on between we'll say Gabriel and whomever this other being was. There must have been an awesome wrestling match like you and I have never been witness to. Now I use the term wrestling match. I don't know what it was. But whatever it was that withheld Daniel for, or, uh, Gabriel from getting there must have been awfully powerful. And I want us also to see that this great struggle was going on without Daniel even being aware of it. That somehow or another, a malignant demon tried to thwart Daniel's prayer from being, from being answered. But it was answered, and it was answered because in verse 13, that Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. It wasn't until two of them ganged up on this other. Two great mighty archangels to subdue this other, whatever it was. I think the logical conclusion would almost have to be that the king of Persia that is mentioned here was none other than Satan. In Revelation 9, just go back there and, and pick this up. Now there is really a great deal of encouragement that comes from this section here in Daniel 10. And you can understand now why the Apostle Paul and also the psalmist said that the angels are ministering spirits. They are ministering to the heirs of salvation. Brethren, they are protecting us. They are standing between us and very possible annihilation. You don't know how many times that an angel has intervened to save your life, to deflect you from the power of these malignant beings. I am sure that it's happened over and over again in cases not just where dramatic interventions took place, but in other cases where an intervention took place of which we were not even aware. Now in Revelation 9 in verse 11, it says, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek, his name, he has the name Apollyon. Okay, that's the great dragon of chapter 12, the Satan or Azazel. He has a number of names, but in each case, he is the king of all of the demons. And that is Lucifer who became Satan. Now, while we're back here, let's go to the book of James in chapter 2, James 2, and in verse 19. And uh, we'll begin to add a bit of encouragement to this. Now, we saw in Daniel 10, well, we saw in Daniel 7, that there's a possibility that there are a large number of demons. And they are out to destroy the heirs of salvation. They want to retain the positions of authority and rule over this earth. And they realize that we are the heirs of salvation. And that the earth is something that has been promised to Abraham and to his children. And so they, they know very well that we are going to replace them in terms of rulership over this earth. And they are desperately trying to hold on to that. And so there are a lot of them. And they use every means at their disposal to try to thwart the things that occur. And I think that we have enough insight from James 10 to recognize that even though we are the heirs of salvation that God still allows the demons to have a great deal of liberty in dealing with us. But he has also appointed angels 
to go to bat for us, to be on our side, to minister to us, to serve us. And though we may not be aware of it, they are there. And they are on the job. Now in James, the second chapter, James 2, and in verse 19, you believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They know God's awesome power. And they, unlike man, tremble. Maybe the better English word would be shudder before God. They recognize His power. They are terrified at the thought of God. They are thoroughly convicted that God is. Now look, this verse goes a long way toward helping us to understand that saving faith is not the intellectual acceptance of a theological proposition, that is, that God is, but rather a belief that expresses itself outwardly in a changed life. You understand what I said? The demons believe. They tremble in fear, but they will not obey God. Now, we too can believe that God is. We give intellectual assent to a theological proposition. Yes, I believe that God is. But we may not even shudder. And most assuredly, most of mankind will not submit. So the faith that saves is the faith that not only believes that God is, but changes one's life according to that belief. That's what saving faith is. So if we then believe that God is, that puts us at least at the same level that the demons are. I don't know whether that's very comforting, maybe not too comforting, but at any rate, it gives us a start. Now let's go to Matthew, the 12th chapter. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? Now, brethren, I am here to tell you that the demons are a kingdom divided against themselves. What Jesus here was addressing was a challenge that the demon that he had been that he had just cast out of this person had been cast out by Satan. And Jesus' argument was no, Satan would never cast out Satan. That would be stupid for Satan to cast out Satan. But he is not saying that under every condition that Satan or other demons will not cast out other demons. And indeed, that does take place. They are very capable of doing signs and lying wonders. They can make it look as though somebody has been healed. When the healing has not been done by God at all, but simply by the removal of one demon by a demon of greater power. Now I go through this because I want you to understand that one of the things that saves us, if I can put it that way, is that the demons are divided against themselves. And because they are a kingdom divided against themselves, they cannot stand. If I can put it in another way, they cannot get their act together because their character is such that they are always in competition with each other. Now, we can understand this when we recognize that the governments and most of humanity has been subject to and deceived by demons. 
carnal nature, human nature, is a reflection of the nature of Satan and his, and his demons. Okay, now what fruit does that produce among men? Can men get along? They can't get along. You see, by the other side of the coin is that the beings who inspired or guide and direct or motivate men not to get along with one another can't get along with themselves either. And the only thing that holds them in line is that there is at the head of this organization a demon of such awesome power that he is able to whip them in the line from time to time so that they will carry out his bidding. He does it by sheer force. It's not done by love of him. They are a kingdom divided against themselves. They will fall. And that, brethren, is something that is an advantage to us because they are a kingdom divided against itself. They are rebellious, and therefore they are disorganized. They can't really get their act together. Now, far more importantly, is that they know God exists, and they tremble before him, and they are therefore restrained. All of these factors beginning to line up here. Number one is that there are far more good angels than there are demons, at least two to one. And these angels, in one sense, don't have to look over very many people because the church of God has never been very big. They are ministering spirits, ministering to the heirs of salvation. So, brethren, we have on our side a tremendous numerical advantage. Remember what Elisha said to his helper? He said, God, show him that there are more on our side than on their side. Remember? That's the way it is. We've got more going for us by far because there's not only this tremendous number of angels, there is God on our side. Now, maybe these demons aren't really all that much afraid of the other angels, the good angels, but they are terrified of God because they know that he has ultimate power. So they are restrained considerably, as we will begin to see. Now, let's go to the book of Job, the first chapter. Job, the first chapter. And we will pick it up there in verse 6. Job 1, 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord, and he said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land? But now... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. But the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay on his person, lay a hand on his person. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now let's analyze this a bit. First of all, let's notice how evasive his very first answer to uh, to God was. What have you been doing, Satan? Where did you come from? Now, I think it'd be good if we kind of thought of him speaking in kind of a flippant voice, taunting, like, why do you want to know, kind of thing. Because what he says here suggests 
a vagabond. Oh, I've just been going to and fro. It suggests a wandering, restless vagabond without roots who is everywhere he goes an outsider. And he is. He was cast down to earth. But obviously he still has access to God, at least in some way, because he came before God with the other sons of God. Yet, what did he feel like while he was there? He didn't really feel accepted. He felt like an outsider. And indeed he was. Think about this because it has something to do with the way he projects himself on others. Now there's a great deal to be learned about humanity here because human nature, carnal nature, comes from this being primarily. And he felt like an outsider, like somebody who was, in a sense you say, wanted to be alone. Now the next thing I want you to notice is how cynical his next answer was. Have you considered my servant Job? Now God here was, in a sense, bragging. Look at this man, how righteous he is. Now, God undoubtedly had something in mind here. He understood Satan's mind, and he understood Job as well. And he was actually creating a situation that Lucifer, Satan, just fell right into. But God was about to give Job the test of his life. Now, we know what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God never gives anybody a greater test than that he feels that they can endure. Therefore, God had absolute confidence in Job that he could defeat Satan even though Job did not know Satan was the one that was doing this. Because after the second chapter, Satan is never mentioned. He never comes into the story again. But he is used at the beginning to set the stage. Now notice, Satan's attitude is cynical. Oh, does Job fear God for nothing? Hey, God, he's only obeying you because of what he can get from you. Aha, cynicism. Skepticism, doubt. Satan did not think that there could be anybody who was genuinely good. Satan thinks everybody's like he is. He's cynical. Now, this is just the opposite of a childlike attitude. Remember Jesus said, unless you become converted and become as a little child, you shall in no wise inherit the kingdom of God Cynicism is the evidence of doubt, of unbelief. It's not a good attitude. Satan believes that everybody is playing the angles in order to take advantage, to get the best for oneself. Remember what Paul wrote to Titus, back there in Titus 1, verse 16, that unto the pure all things are pure, but unto the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Brethren, we need to think about this because faith in God's goodness is the very heart and core of the reason for love, for hope, and for joy. Cynicism is its opposite. It is a studied, a meditated upon disbelief. And when it is evident in a human being, it is clear evidence that Satan has had a great impact on that mind. And anybody who is cynical, that kind of a person is very destructive to good relationships because people impacted by Satan who are cynics will read things into what other people say and do. And it destroys them. I mean, it destroys the person who thinks this way. Now, notice what Satan read into this episode with Job. 
that Job was obedient to God out of selfish motivations. See, that's what he read into it. Satan plays the angles. He is cunning and deceitful. Like no human being we have ever met. He can use flattery like nobody we ever met can use flattery. He can be charming, but he is always using it to see what he can get for himself because he always reads into the other person that they are just like he is. It's a terrible curse. It destroys relation. And so what he, what he is implying here to God is that Job's goodness or his godliness was artificial. He was implying it has never been tested. He is saying, God, you've made it too easy for him. He is saying, God, you bribed him by all of these good things. So you see, by doing this, now the basic questions for the entire book are now set. And that is, is God so good that he can be loved for what he himself is and not for his gifts and what he can do for us? That's the issue here. Can a man have faith in God when there are no benefits. Can a man have faith in God when things aren't going well? Can a man have faith in God when things don't turn out the way we thought they should? Can a man have faith in God when God allows the rug to be pulled out from under the person? We are all going to be tested this way. Some in greater measure, some in lesser measure. But we are all going to be tested, and I hope that we all do as well as Job did. Job, let's put it this way. God's faith in Job was justified. Job's loyalty held. And he showed that he was not obedient to God just for what God could do for him. He truly loved God for what he what he is. Okay, now Satan may be the chief mischief maker in the universe, but we have to understand that compared to God, he is still very puny. And so God sets limits, and Satan is able to do only what God permits him to do. And so we see in verse 12, He is in your hand, only do not lay a hand on his person. In chapter 2, and in verse 6, I believe it is that we want, yes. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And so we see here a principle set that the rest of us can take great comfort in, that as with Job, God also deals with us. That God has set limits on what Satan or the demons are able to do with us. That God deals with us according to the measure of our faith, our love. Let's just say the measure of his spirit within us. And we have to then uh, deal with what he allows to occur by faith, understanding. We love God that he is generous and good, but we love him for what he is and not because he has given us good things. That's an additional thing, an additional blessing. And so we see then that we have the responsibility that from time to time we are going to have to overcome the demons that God allows to have, or let's say to put us into a test. Well, let's go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and in verses 10 through 12. Ephesians 6 and verses 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now he tells us in verse 10 to be strong. 
It actually means to clothe oneself with strength, as with a garment. He is saying that what we are to do here is something that is part of a process. It is not something that we become quickly any more than we are clothed with clothing all at once, but rather we put clothing on one piece at a time. And so becoming strong in the Lord is part of a process that takes place in our experience in this relationship uh, with God. And so we are to be continually strengthened with Christ's strength. Be clothed, be made strong in the Lord. Now, he tells us then, in verse 11, to put on. And that is very interesting because it literally means in English, hide in, as though it is a place of safety. Just had all those sermons on a place of safety. And so he's telling us that we are to hide in. It is very close to uh, the English word envelop. An envelope covers a letter. And so the armor of God that is being strong in the Lord will envelop us. It means that every part of our body, from the soles of our feet to the top of our head, is to be covered with the armor of God, which he calls the panoplin. Well, it doesn't appear in the English, but it is translated the whole armor of God, the panoplin. It is not just divine equipment, but the whole divine equipment that we are to be covered with. Now, if we were going to say this in modern English, and we were the Apostle Paul, today we would say, brethren, if you are going to do battle with Satan, with the principalities and powers, you better be armed to the teeth. Armed to the teeth. Now, we have to do this because we have to understand that Satan is going to be coming at us from every direction. He has the powers, the abilities to be able to do this, and we have to be able to deflect all of the cunning arts, the deceit, the stratagems that he is going to be used and throwing at us, all these fiery darts that the Apostle Paul says. Now, he tells us in verse 12, we are involved in a wrestling match, and this is very interesting. It doesn't take a great deal to explain it, but a little bit of background will help us to understand. Because what he is saying is this. It is based on what happened in Greek wrestling matches. Very frequently, the loser was blinded. He was not put to death. His eyes were put out. Now, understand how that would incapacitate a person physically. Now, let's think of it in spiritual terms. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments, right? In other words, a person who is doing the commands of God is going to be able to see spiritually, see? Now, if we lose the wrestling match with Satan, the loss is going to be in the ability to see spiritual things. We begin to lose it. Isn't that a colorful description? What a metaphor there. He is not saying we will die immediately. We simply begin to lose it. And so in order to protect ourselves, we have to have on the whole armor of God. We are going against a formidable adversary. Now, he's not trying to frighten us, and I am not trying to frighten us. But we have to fight this with understanding. People are not our real enemies. The principalities and powers will use people. He wants us to understand that the real enemies are these supernatural beings who are motivating these people to do their bidding and trying to get the heirs of salvation to be tripped up. Now know this, victory is assured because 
our David, Jesus Christ, has already defeated their Goliath, Satan. He did it, and he lives in us. But we will never beat them unless we acknowledge that they are real and that we have confidence that God will defeat them if we give God the chance to do it by being obedient to him. What this passage is, is a ringing call to arms. Notice he says, stand. You know what he said in the Greek? He said, hold your position. Don't back up. Hold your position. Don't give in to his deceitful persuasions in a life of pride, envy, covetousness, those kinds of attitudes and feelings that will lead us to break God's command. 